Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Rafi Wadan, co-founder and CEO of Stargazer. We like to call our tool also a data-driven employee. That was the way I was always seeing Stargazer and trying to build them. However, I knew that the prescriptive part is a super complex approach. For us, it was clear, well, we first of all need a framework for that. But we also used this custom advisory board to make sure that this whole model with the prescriptive analytics is also working. So that's basically in which stage we are. And then in the beginning, we had usually POCs, customers who did a 30 days POC, and the result was awesome. We could see that our tool was identifying and recommending solutions on how to solve bottlenecks, which were in a six digits in terms of profit. This is Rafi. He started his career as a financial controller at Bayersdorf and Lufthansa Technique in Germany and the US. He then finished his PhD degree on the topic Impact of Digitization and AI on Controlling and Financial Planning and Analysis. In this period, he built a proven track record in turnaround situations. Rafi has a deep understanding of KPIs and how to cascade them throughout the organization. He's a strategic thinker who's able to see the big picture and develop creative solutions to complex problems. During his career, he experienced how hard it is to find accurate answers to financial controlling questions, such as why the company is losing money or what could be the year-end profit. Using Excel and heavy ERP tools was sometimes a nightmare. To provide timely and accurate information to stakeholders, he and his co-founder built themselves software that equipped the management with the correct answers in real time, and the company made a turnaround. Stargazer was born. Stargazer is on a mission to help manufacturing companies increase profitability by removing gut feelings and by providing forward-looking insights and intelligent recommendations. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Rafi to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way manufacturing companies make decisions. Rafi shares his lessons learned on creating predictable traction in a highly competitive category of financial planning and analysis. He tells stories about how niching down helped them to scale faster and help deliver remarkable results in a matter of 30 days. Last but not least, he elaborates on how they can consistently raise the bar and get ahead of the market. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how verticalization will help to create traction and rapidly grow it. Secondly, what questions to ask in order to understand whether you're onto something with your startup idea. Thirdly, how slicing implementation time can give you a major long-term sales advantage. And fourthly, what to get right to drive a successful fundraising round. Well, hi Rafi, thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. 
Hi, Tom. Pleasure to be invited here. Yeah, that's indeed the right way to say it, because I was really glad that you reached out to me after you've listened to the podcast that I did with Sunny Han from uh, Fulcrum. And then I looked into the profile of your company, Stargazer, and yeah, I was like, oh yeah, I have to have you on my podcast, because this is exactly why I created the podcast in the first place. And it's an area that I've got, I mean, I've had a long history in as well, in the finance and ERP world. But this is the one that I, what I really like about it, just for the audience to get a sneak preview, is the augmentation side of things, that you really are there not to automate things, but really to make people in that industry, and particularly in the finance function, do things they've never been able to do before. I was really looking forward to this, so glad we speak. Just to get a little bit about yourself, if you have to describe yourself as an entrepreneur, and you have to say, you kind of use three or two or three characteristics, what characteristics would you use? In general, I would say, Probably as most of those entrepreneurs, curiosity is something which would probably describe me pretty well. Even if I'm coming from this, many people would probably describe it a bit more boring world, FP&A or controlling. But I still think the curiosity in this world is something which could enlighten the whole FP&A world. In general, I would say always, always also positive minded. I think the startup world in general is a roller coaster, especially in the beginning. Yeah. We are right on a pre-seed slash seed stage. However, I think being positive is always helpful there. But on the other hand, also super innovative, I think. Building an FP&A solution, which is not only different to others, but also can change the world is something where we have to be brave enough to do the next step. And I would probably call myself with those three words. You've already uh, ticked a number of words that make me going, you know. And curiosity is one of them, because I think it's one of the traits that make remarkable software companies. Being different, not better, and doing something that you're on a mission to change what's going on in the world, particularly in the finance function. Spot on. Love it. Going back to like when you started the company, what was the big problem that you saw? And just to reflect a little bit on that. I mean, I come from, from the finance and ERP world, and this has been going on for decades. Everything has been created. Every function has been developed. What did you see that was just screaming for a solution? I used to work in manufacturing, usually as an as an financial controller. So sitting on that position, which was responsible in Providing the right information at the end of the day to the decision makers, which are on the C-level. But when I saw how much gut feeling at the end of the day versus data-driven versus data-driven reports we actually provided, I found that at the end of the day, it's a huge company. Those are million, million-based revenue-based companies, but making a lot of gut feeling decisions doesn't feel pretty well. So especially my last position, I was working in Los Angeles for an MRO company in aviation space. The company didn't do well. And we in finance and controlling were kind of lost when it comes to, you know, questions from the management, they asked tough questions and we were not able to explain them in detail. And one thing I figured out is, especially in the finance world, it tends to shift a bit more towards nice visualizations, having some modern dashboards and et cetera, and feel like, okay, now we are pretty good on the stage. But at the end of the day, when your CEO enters into your office and have like tough questions, you need to be ready to basically answer all of those questions. So yeah. especially the last position helped me also emotionally to see how a company can do a turnaround with basically simple methods, simple ideas, and basically turn down all those fancy KPIs and dashboards. We are actually not a big fan of those. And that actually helped the company to do a turnaround, save 400 jobs. And that showed me at the end of the day, hey, that's an approach from the finance department should basically come off and help the company to do the right decisions. And also, before I started with Stargazer, what I did was, as a first-time entrepreneur, basically interviewing a lot of CFOs in the US, in Europe, and basically hear like, hey, what kind of pain points you guys have? And nearly all of those told me like, hey, when it comes to the last field of making right decisions, 
we have issues here. Our ERP system gets more and more data. We are talking about this big data wave, but it leads ultimately to the fact that we have more issues in making the proper decisions, the accurate and time-wise decisions. And that's the approach where we said, okay, let's basically put the finger on exact that problem and be a solution for helping here. Fascinating. Especially because there's like, I know how many millions and millions of companies always invest in these types of systems, the core systems of the business. And I mean, SAP and Oracle and uh, how the manufacturing world are running on those systems in the first place. Exactly. I mean, you are experienced with, you have a background in all those ERP systems. And I think in general, those increments are doing pretty well. They are there for what they have to do as a database, better than all those other databases around. But when it comes really to the analytics point and like using that type of data and utilizing it, making more out of it, I think 99% are still at the end of the day reflecting on Excel. And Excel always say, I loved Excel. I was used to be a heavy Excel user. It's super flexible. But at the end of the day, the result in Excel is only how good the user is. So if you're a proper data scientist and you can use some statistical methods, well, you're going to have the output there, right? But if not, the management will basically rely on that, whatever the output is from the Excel user. But isn't that exactly the reason why all these corporate performance management systems have been developed and all these extremely sophisticated analytic suites, the tableaus, I mean, all of these systems out there. I was at Unit 4 and we acquired a couple of those as well and still not the answer. Still not the answer. I think one of the big points is really the change right now also in the whole software as a service world from being horizontal more towards verticalization. So we see even on the horizontal world, and I would just drop one name, for instance, Anaplan, which is doing pretty well, whatever they do at the moment. But at the end of the day, they also target like 10 different industries. And we as a young startup, we pretty much focus on the machine learning world. So we try to use the power of machine learning patterns and apply it to our world. But we also figure out, well, if we are trying to do that in a proper way, we have to focus on one specific industry. And that's why we said, okay, let's focus on the manufacturing world. We have the big advantage that we have a plenty amount of data, which is in the favor of using machine learning patterns. And in general, it's super complex. So for a, for a normal user, a normal human, it's super complex to identify all those data patterns. And that's kind of the movement what we see at the moment. Being vertical, one specific industry makes it easier to apply that machine learning approach. What makes the verticalization Is that purely because you can address, you can prepare that machine learning for specific challenges? You can start to make it learn the patterns itself? Definitely. Because at the end of the day, the output has to be something which would help the decision-making process. It has to be something where even our case, when we target the manufacturing, we have a super wide field. Just let me drop like to one example. We have customers which are, you know, super heavy machine driven. That means in that case, the process of a machine is basically the big driver of the manufacturing. If the machine is running 99%, it's better than if you know they lose 1% point and it's like 98%. And then we have other companies which are super material focused and the material is the big driver. So even within the manufacturing, you're going to see different types of manufacturing companies. But if we would move to a totally different industry and always take the example with software companies, would have a totally different feel, totally different recommendations, suggestions, and business type. So I think that's a big field. At the end of the day, the data are just a reflect of what happens in the business. So it's basically a reflect of the business model. And I think that's the way how the whole focus on verticalization is moving right now. Okay. So what happens if the world starts to embrace solutions or the solution like Stargazer? I mean, the big ROI at the end of the day, and that's something which I think is even more important than just having transparency and in, in insights, which are required by based on IFRS and those kind of standards, is to cut costs, but also increase the revenue. 
So I think profitability is a pretty important point. And that's pretty important for us as well when we talk to customers to say, hey, we are not there to basically help you to cut costs and decrease your FTE size. We are here to make sure that your company is running more profitable, that you can increase your business and can basically get more through your profit. So that's kind of the big idea of what we try to do. And I mean, we see right now, we started in the middle of COVID. We have seen how many companies had like layoffs and shut down. And that's exactly the way how we try to help them to basically avoid that. Yeah, that's fascinating. You can only cut so much, you know. Profitability is something that is a very important thing for a business. But the best way to increase profitability is to grow. Exactly. Because um, you can only cut so much. Fully right. I mean, especially in manufacturing, right? Manufacturing stands for super tight margins and being a very low level. That means even in our case, when we say, hey, if we can improve a percent point in your margin, this could be a huge difference. That means at the end of the day, employees who are working on a shop floor are, I wouldn't say more relaxed, but they have a more healthy lifestyle. And that's the way where we say, let's keep it more in a sustainable way. People should have secure jobs and not just kind of on and offline. Exactly. Really good that you say that. Let me see. You started the business, if I look at LinkedIn, 2020, September 2020, in the middle of COVID. Exactly. Um, I didn't even have realized that. Impressed already how far you've come then. If we wind back the clock in terms of how you started with the development side, like I said, everything has been developed already once. What were critical decisions you took to get started and to start getting towards a product that you can actually bring to market? The big idea for me, first of all, to jump from zero to one is that hypothesis which I had, which I experienced by myself, is that something which is actually also something other peers, CFOs, controllers will also figure out. And the big idea was, yeah, definitely, yes. More than 95% of those CFOs I interviewed, and I took a bit this research approach since I was working over the last five years on a PhD, is basically, hey, we need that type of solution. So for me, there was the starting point, okay, this hypothesis is working. However, I know that even you know from a financial controlling perspective or a CFO perspective, you have even different pain points. So what we did is in the beginning of the time when we developed the product, back in the time we went through the Alchemist Accelerator in San Francisco from Ravi Bilani, we created a customer advisory board. So we had 15 CFOs of manufacturing companies overall in US, but also in Europe from different type of manufacturing. So we also were trying to see, hey, what is kind of the most important stuff? What is basically what you guys need? And our main hypothesis was the profit and the profitability has to be improved. But back in the times, and it was middle of or end of COVID, high season, we figured out, well, cash is, for instance, a huge problem. Many people told us, like, Rafi, right now, we get very critical with cash. So for us, it was a learning to say, well, let's also focus on that. And let's also embrace that in our roadmap as well. And those kind of learnings were super helpful to basically justify and make sure, does it really make sense to build those things and get those prioritization or roadmap? Yeah, exactly. And then your first product. I mean, what fascinates me is that you not only predict what's going to happen, but you also prescribe what people need to do. Was that the focus right from the start? Was that feedback? It was actually the initial vision, I would say. I always had the idea, seeing a CEO or a CFO who's kind of able to get all his questions, which you basically have in a day-to-day business answer by a tool, by a machine, however. And we like to call our tool also a data-driven employee. That was the way I was always seeing Stargazer and trying to build them. However, I knew that the prescriptive part is a super complex approach. Some call it decision intelligence. Some call it just prescriptive analytics. And for us, it was clear, well, we first of all need a framework for that. And basically, apply on top of those frameworks, then those data science methods like predictive analytics. 
But we also use this custom advisory board to make sure that this whole model with the prescriptive analytics is also working. So that's basically in which stage we are. And then in the beginning, we had usually POCs, customers who did a 30 days POC and the result was awesome. We could see that our tool was identifying and recommending solutions on how to solve bottlenecks which were in a six digits in terms of profit. Let me make a small interruption here. Rafi just made an excellent remark about what separates his business from other financial planning and analysis SaaS suites. Rather than presenting pretty dashboards, they go a step further and recommend solutions to help manufacturers specifically solve costly bottlenecks, ongoing. They're not focused on the output, but on the outcome. And that's a core driver for predictable traction. It's a typical trade remarkable SaaS company's master. They acknowledge they cannot please everyone, then they niche down. Then they focus on the essence and create new value possibilities. From there, momentum starts. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Wow. For us, it was like, okay, if that is something which is a standalone software and not a consulting approach, and it's not something where the tool is telling it, you know, those are your bottlenecks, you need to improve it. And then as consultants, I'm leaving, the tool is there. It's always trying to figure out based on real time where the company has issues and is sending out recommendations. That's a way how we have envisioned that and where we are right now at that stage that companies are also using it. Yeah, that's fascinating. That is really where the value is. I mean, the whole ERP world, nothing wrong about the solution, but it has always been around automation and making sure that you could do the thing that nobody wants to do, the admin, with as little people as possible. But at the end, that's not what the solution was actually made for. It was only always about how can we increase profitability? And funny enough that everybody has failed to actually do exactly that. Yeah, I fully agree with you. I mean, there's a pretty good recent report from Gartner saying that the last five years, pretty much focused on the whole RPA, robotic process automation space. And you can probably agree on that as well. The whole accounting space is basically benefiting from those automation. But when it comes to the next step, besides accounting, the controlling world, where it's more about decision-making, then we have to focus more on some intelligence, which is basically trying to have an output where decision-maker can rely on it and do the right decision, and then basically measure it. And Ghana's report is saying that this year, particularly CFOs will require and focus pretty much on those analytic solutions. And we think that's right now the time where also CFOs has to step up and basically work with those solutions. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, it becomes one plus one equals three type of an approach, and that's super valuable. Yeah, it's very interesting to see what yeah these type of solutions can do to start seeing things and connecting dots that you don't see yet or not see at all. The moment you start implementing a solution like that, how quickly can people then start to see those recommendations coming in? Usually from day one. What we basically do, I mean, first of all, I think the implementation time is something we have worked, especially last year, pretty long along. I mean, when we talk to clients and we hear about their ERP integration time and implementation time, which is going from a year or even one and a half years, we think we are way faster here. Sometimes it takes us 10 to 15 days. That's our promise to a client. But from that moment on, we have a data score where it basically explains the quality of the data from that time on. The CFO can use the solution already and get some recommendations based on the data quality. I have to say that obviously data quality is a point where typical garbage in, garbage out. If the yep. data is good, it's better the recommendation will be also in a granularity type and be able to explain by detail, by process, by employee on a shop floor how to improve things. If a client is saying, well, we have issues with our P system, we are trying to even collect the data. Well, 
then obviously the feedback won't be as great. Yeah, I mean, I, in the very, very beginning of my podcast, beginning of 2018, I had Cindy Gordon on my podcast, who's running a startup from Toronto, but typically in the sales space, where she also does prescriptive advice towards sales, like where to focus, not to focus. Mm -hmm. The one thing to really get the quality of was indeed to motivate individual salespeople. Here's a recommendation. It's pretty accurate. You could make it more accurate if you start filling in these type of this type of data. Mm. And that became the motivator, like the carrot in front of the people mm. to just fix it from the inside out. Yeah. Behavioral change. Exactly. I think variable change is one of the most important thing. I mean, we don't have to forget we target CFOs or decision makers, but they are not the one who are sitting on the shop floor or running on the shop floor and basically change the process. We have engineers on that side. But what we also see is usually those two departments are working as silos. Usually a lot of engineers are complaining about the finance people say, well, they're working as, you know, being on an own island. But what we love, and that's like the first feedback we got on our first pilots and POCs is, hey, Rafi, it's kind of the first time that my CFO department, my controlling department is talking to my engineering department and they're trying to work on things and improve things. And that's the way how we like to see a manufacturing, that it's not about finance guys are the one who are crunching data and just making sure that the numbers are right and controlling yeah. everything and that the expenses are not too high. No, they should be also at least two days in a week on the shop floor and help the engineering guys to do experiments, to change A and B and see yeah. what kind of impact it had and if it would have made sense. Yeah. Makes it all much more uh, rewarding and engaging, exactly. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Mm -hmm. What has been the hardest nut to crack in this process where you are right now? Was it technology-wise? Was it business-wise? Yeah, I mean, technology-wise, I would say basically two waves. At the one side is the prescriptive analytics himself. I mean, we figured out and we were super, super brave to directly jump on the prescriptive analytics, but we also figured out it's super complex. I think my CTO used to be a lecturer and also made a PhD in computer science and data science. Is someone who has a pretty deep understanding about the whole machine learning world. But however, we need a team of experts and even more talents to make sure that we can have the best prescriptive analytics tool. So I think the complexity on that is the one side. On the other side, we also want to make sure that our software is a super scalable solution. That means when it comes from one manufacturing to another one, we have to make sure that the implementation time is going to reduce as much as possible. Also here, we are working right now on an automated approach. So the idea here is basically from implementing towards somewhere around three to five hours versus 10 to 15 days where we are. Optimistic step, but I think that's something we're working across. Yeah, reminds me of the story. This comes from Jeff Jonas, CEO of Sensing. He said exactly the same. And during the pandemic, his solution was all about, I had already the right value proposition around bringing costs down in an organization. But the typical process to do so was a proof of concept of six months. Yeah. So he took the proof of concept of six months down to six hours. Mm. And that's where momentum started. It is the case. We always think that, okay, we have the solution. And if people love it, they'll buy it. But then in those tough times, that long implementation cycle can actually be your own bottleneck. It's Definitely. Yeah, I fully agree. 
And I think when it comes to the messaging from our side, we're also trying to make sure to let the manufacturing companies know, hey, it's a behavioral change on the one side. Sure, as a CFO who is doing over 20 years, pretty good job. You stargazer as a potential data-driven employee, and you're going to have a potential competitive advantage in the market. If you are able to save and to save costs and basically increase your margin, you might win more market share. So that's the way how we try to position. But in general, I think CFO, it's also a journey to get them there, basically. Yeah, exactly. But there's also a people factor there. Yeah, in a world where not everybody is thinking in an innovative way, and there's risks involved and so on. Yeah, that brings me to some questions around your experiences in the whole sales cycle. I mean, when did you start selling the solution? When was the first version available that was ready to go to market? I would say beginning of this year, so beginning of 2022. Okay. So what have been your biggest learnings there? We assumed that already that the sales cycle, especially in the manufacturing, are going to be super big or, you know, in terms of sales cycles length and usually somewhere around three, but potentially also 12 months. I think the pricing topic was something where we were super open in the beginning just to see, hey, we target mid-market companies, but also even SMBs. However, we had even customers who were even more enterprises, but the pricing point was something where we said, let's see what the customer is dictating here. And I stood based on those POC, I just mentioned to you those feedback what we got where customers could see an ROI of 200,000 already within 30 days. We said, well, the customers is able to pay a lot for this tool, basically to save a lot of cost. So how I think the, how was the reaction? The reaction was actually pretty good. I mean, in the beginning, we came up with different pricing models and left it open, but then we could easily figure out, well, we got clients and we had some enterprises here in Europe, but also in the US. They're able to pay a six-digit number for a yearly pricing with that tool. They love to see it as an not you know financial planning analysis tool. They love to see it as an enterprise performance management solution where they can basically detect cost savings and improve their company up to 3 million in a year. And I think we have on our webpage uh, an ROI tracker where we always love, which basically shows how much companies can save based on our recommendation. I think those numbers are actually pretty accurate and reflects what we have done already with our customers. So I think that was a big learning. In general, I think AI and machine learning is a buzzwords usually, especially for CFOs. If they understand that this tool is not only about, you know, some magic, which is helping them to save costs. It's more also a simulation tool. It's something where the company has to also evolve and change. Exactly what I mean before, that the finance team has to work closely with the engine team. I think they will pretty fast understand that the value is the biggest there, basically. Exactly. I mean, I couldn't care less what engine is in my car and what fuel it's going to have as long as it does the thing for me. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard a number of times that sometimes AI can be the scary part, but maybe that's also because we're stressing it too much. At the end, it's about, okay, this is the outcome that you're going to achieve. And if they then ask her, how do you do that? Right. We can explain that. Okay. I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. And on your website, I already see also a number of the values that you have of your company are interestingly connected to that. For example, Amaze the World is one of them. Mm -hmm. Asking you as a, now is your first company where you're running a startup. What do you believe are essential traits that you need to have or develop to become a software company that people start talking about and keep talking about? Hmm. I think one of the important things, what I have at least figured out is, is be on time. Sometimes even the best innovation can be too early. Even thinking about the prescriptive analytics part, having something which is basically telling the user what they have to do is, you know, 10 years ago might, might be even too early. So I think be on time and make sure to understand the client or the customer as good as possible and match those two things together. I think that's something where 
as a software entrepreneur or someone who's founding a software company is something which is pretty crucial. So having a good sense for that feeling, how's the market going? How much can I as a software company basically innovate that market and disrupt or change it here? Yeah. But that's, of course, also that has to do uh, the whole market of manufacturing is likely not going to be your market from the start. It needs to be a certain type of manufacturing company that thinks a certain way, that believes that they can achieve the results that they're aiming for. How do you use that intelligence in the way you segment the market and position yourself? Yeah, I mean, what we did in the beginning, and that was also kind of an hypothesis because as I said in the beginning or end of the COVID pandemic and also post-supply chain issues and et cetera, we figured out what we did was testing two different industries. We said, let's focus on the automotive industry and the automotive industry. Let's just see how, how the reaction is. Is that something where they say, well, you know, we don't have enough money to spend for a software like this? Or is that the other way where they say, well, we need that as soon as possible? And luckily, it moved more to the second one a bit, but they were, had the pressure to make sure to cut costs, but also be more efficient. And that was the way how we started, basically, to figure out also content-wise, I mean, product-wise, make sure that we can message those two markets first in the manufacturing. But then the last six to nine months went also product-wise way broader. So make sure that we have free templates for any type of manufacturing company. It doesn't matter if it's automotive or a CNC shop. But it helped us. It helped us to focus on a specific industry, one specific, you know, within the manufacturing and just test it out and do a bit A-B testing. What happened then to sales cycles and win rates? Did you see any significant difference? I mean, since we focused pretty much on those industries, it was way easier than to target those automotive or even airmotive companies, right? We had some case studies. We had already some existing customers. It was easier to get there to other customers since we had some nice customer names and brands. But I think moving forward, it's interesting to see those different sectors within the manufacturing. Some of those are very innovative and eager to test out something. The other one a bit slower. So I think for now, we have a pretty good feeling and statistics for those different segmentations in the manufacturing. Well, what has been your biggest obstacle to overcome in relation to the whole go-to-market side? I mean, until now, I did mainly, especially beginning of the year, founder-led sales, which was interesting uh-huh. in general to get the good feeling. And I think now it's the process to make sure that everyone who's on board on our side on a sales team has the same message, has the same understanding, and then basically try to help those manufacturing companies in the same way. And I think in our case, it's a super sales-heavy software. So marketing posts and everything else is super fancy, nice. But I think very crucial is that the CFO or the decision-making at the end of the day, who's going to be the user or even the buyer, is really having a lot of trust in us. And seeing that we see the same way as they basically see their business and trying to make sure to help them in a proper way. And I think that's something, what I could figure out, trust, it's super important, showing the expertise and being credible on that side. And that's the way now in my position and responsibility to make sure that I can basically embrace it within our company as well. Yeah, exactly. Wise words there, because at the end, it's solid product is there, but this is where a number of companies really make a big bet. And that's where trust comes in. And particularly, of course, with people in the finance function, that is always a very important point in the first place. From the lessons that you've learned now over the last yeah, a good two years that started the company up to now. What would be a do and what would be a don't that you would advise to tech entrepreneurs that aspire to kind of start something like this or to take their business to the next level? Always talk to clients. Have that always in mind. Even try to engage them while building a product. I think in our case, just to give you a reference, it took us a bit time to build the product. We had to understand, well, the CFOs, you also mentioned it, they won't have like six different tools in their company. It's basically one FPNA tool, a second one, 
but this tool has to be extensive. It has to be very helpful there. So yeah. making sure that we can embrace all those different inputs from different CFOs with different pain points, being very close to them and make sure that we have this extensive tool was something what I would basically tell everyone, hey, make sure to be very close to your clients, even encourage them in the product development. And I think that's something which is super helpful. I think on the don't side, I would probably mention the whole, especially right now when it comes to the markets, when it comes to the whole fundraising point, make sure to have something available. Doesn't matter if it's a great idea or a proper created idea or a vision or already some metrics to show to potential investors, for instance, but because I think spending too much time on fundraising, spending too much time on making sure to set up the company is something that has to come along with sales traction and product. I think that's something where I would say I have to be in the right matchup. So traction first and then think about funding. Definitely. Yeah, that's something I would probably go for. I think the whole way of having a nice vision and basically show that in a PowerPoint presentation, especially in that case in a manufacturing where you have to prove an ROI, I think that that goes first. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Rafi, for your story. Brave that you've entered this world, create a not a new category, but definitely the next generation of the category because I've been in this financial planning world myself and it's been around, but there's limitations to what has always been achieved. I like the approach that you've taken here, really yeah, going in with hypotheses, working with design partners, customer advisory board to build a product that the market actually wants and has a big desire to take on. So congratulations on that. I keep following you on your journey and yeah, good luck for what's to come next year. Thank you much, Ton. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure from my side as well. And this ends my conversation with Rafi and I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Rafi Wadan, co-founder and CEO of Stargazer. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, Share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. questions we've got answers business leadership ownership and sales can be challenging tune into the accelerate your business growth podcast to learn from the world's experts join me your host diane helbig as i chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business you'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas tips and suggestions you need to realize greater success
Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.